Hello, Tom Tilly with you. In this episode of The Briefing, an inspirational story that went tragically wrong. Jason Kennison was told he'd never walk again after a car accident in his early 20s. I've overcome or dealt with probably up to 14 procedures, some broken bones, metal pins, screws and some challenges in my life and sort of set up a plan to take on Mount Everest. So he fought back and he taught himself to walk and then he wanted to give back by raising money for spinal cord research, climbing Mount Everest. Well, he did it. He made it to the top, 8,800 metres, the world's biggest summit. But then, soon after, the hiking company said he started behaving abnormally and tragedy struck. In this episode, a doctor who's worked on Mount Everest explains how altitude sickness strikes in the death zone on the mountain that so many people want to climb. Pretty much the body cells start to die. And when parts of our brain are deprived of oxygen, the cells are unable to function and unable to perform what they normally do. Before that, Katrina Blouse is here for today's headlines. Hello, Katrina. It is Monday, May 29. Hey everyone, a 3.8 magnitude earthquake has struck northwest of Melbourne overnight. Now that might not sound too enormous, but it is the biggest earthquake to hit the region in 100 years and Melbourne residents have reported buildings shaking just before midnight. There were no immediate reports of widespread damage or injuries, but authorities have warned of likely aftershocks. Uh, no tsunami threat, we should hmm. point that out. Uh, Sunbury is kind of where most people felt it. Thousands of people reported feeling that earthquake to Geoscience Australia by around 1.30 in the morning. Sunbury's about 40 kilometres northwest of Melbourne City. And there's been a breakthrough on the US debt ceiling debate. So the US President Joe Biden and his Republican opponents have agreed in principle to raise the debt ceiling and avert a default. We still have a lot of work to do, but I believe this is an agreement in principle that's worthy of the American people. So that's the House Speaker, Republican Kevin McCarthy. Biden said he struck a deal and averted a crisis because (laughs) if they don't raise the debt ceiling, they basically run out of money within a week. This happens all the time in America. They run it really close to the line. It's almost like a game of financial chicken between the two parties. Um, It would be disastrous if they actually let themselves run out of money. The thing is, they do this almost every year, Katrina, because the government there is spending more than it receives, they haven't been in a surplus since 2001 in America. So they keep pushing this debt ceiling up. It's now at, wait for it, $31 trillion. Yeah, when you start talking figures like that, it doesn't even seem like real money Mm. anymore. And they're saying that they're going to do this, that they're going to uh, come up with this deal without raising any taxes. They're going to cut spending on some programs, but not apparently on the critical ones. So I'm keen to see some detail on this. And they're also saying that um, they are quite confident that this deal is going to pass Congress. The Turkish president Recep Tayyip Erdogan has declared victory over his rival Kemi Kelekterol in a second round of the Turkish presidential election. Erdogan has ruled the country for two decades and when the result is confirmed, he's going to have another five years in that top job. The runoff presidential election was the first in country's history. As it got down to the wire, it became incredibly toxic. Uh, The opposition candidate accusing the president of slander, lies, 
even using deep fake videos. Now, this candidate was hoping to restore secularism and democracy to mm. Turkey. Uh, just last week, the currency reached a record low. Inflation is at 50%. There's some concern now among Turkey's NATO partners uh, that President Erdogan is going to be looking to build an Islamist autocracy and questions around whether Turkey is going to remain a trusted partner for the West in the region, especially in the face of an expansionist Russia. And Senator Lydia Thorpe is lodging a racism claim against the Greens, her former party. She told the ABC's Insiders program yesterday that her legal team has told her there's enough grounds for her to lodge a claim with the Australian Human Rights Commission. I've experienced racism all my life in every workplace and the Greens were no different. Yeah, so while Thorpe is saying there's more than enough evidence to form the basis of this case, we don't know what that case is yet. She's refusing to say what it is or whether it's against any of her former colleagues. Uh, she quit the Greens back in February. What we do know is last week in a Senate Estimates Committee, she publicly accused Sarah Hansen-Young of not backing her or coming to her defence in the face of racial bullying. Um, Sarah Hansen-Young denied that. Yeah, she's a controversy machine, Lydia Thorpe. Um, the other interesting thing she said yesterday was that she might abstain from the vote on the referendum for The Voice. See, she was clear that she didn't want to vote no with Peter Dutton, but she said she wouldn't vote yes. So I guess that was the only option. She's saying she wants a treaty, not a voice. She did hint that she was open to changing her mind to a yes. Yeah, we are going to hear a lot more about The Voice, especially in coming days. Uh, we've got politicians talking a lot about that again this week. The lower house is going to continue debating that bill before it proceeds to the Senate. All right, we'll catch you again tomorrow, Katrina. I'm about to do this fascinating interview on what happens in the death zone on Everest. Amazing, absolutely amazing. Amazing son, amazing brother. He was just on top of the world, literally on top of the world. He was, had his photo on top of the summit, you know, living his life. So that's the family of Jason Kennison. He's the 40-year-old South Australian man who died on Mount Everest just over a week ago. And our hearts really go out to the family. He sounds like he was an amazing man. He had that beautiful dream of helping other people recover from spinal injuries just like he did. So to learn more about what happens there in the death zone at Mount Everest, we have a mountain doctor as our guest. We're going to learn how altitude sickness strikes. Deirdre McCormack is a GP who was fascinated by the Himalayas and everything Nepal. So she did some post-grad study in mountain sickness and volunteered at Everest Base Camp with the Himalayan Rescue Association. Deirdre, thank you for joining us. What was your reaction to the news of Jason's death? I was very upset and very saddened to hear about this young man's demise. And my heart goes out to both them, his family and his friends and all those known to him. And especially those who shared the um, climbing experience with him in Nepal. Yeah, so we have some basic details on what happened from um, Asian Trekking, which is the company he was with. They've said that he reached the summit, which is 8,800 metres, and was starting to show signs of abnormal behaviour um, and that the two Sherpas with him helped him down to the balcony area at around 8,400, so about 400 metres down. And they said that 
the oxygen cylinders they had were running out. So the guides went down further to Camp 4, which is at 8,000 metres, hoping to come back with the oxygen cylinders. But bad weather came in and they couldn't get to him. Now, you've been to base camp. You understand a, a fair bit more than I do about the geography of this mountain and the risks. So this area above Camp 4 is called the death zone. Is this normally where things can go wrong? Yeah, so the death zone is the term used for altitudes over 8,000 metres. And at this degree of altitude, the oxygen is so limited that the body cells start to die and judgment is impaired. It's impossible for the human body to be able to acclimatise at this altitude. So this gentleman um, did have his supplemental oxygen and I can understand the unpredictability of the weather at that altitude as well. The winds, the temperatures, the visibility, all of those have a part to play in delaying any descent from Mount Everest. And um, oxygen only has a limited supply before it runs out. And it sounds like nature stepped in and um, added a massive hurdle to oxygen, um, supplemental oxygen, to be able to reach this gentleman on time. Yeah, so the phrase abnormal behaviour, I found an interesting one. I mean, is that something that is often a symptom of altitude sickness? Altitude sickness or acute, uh, acute mountain sickness, it's a, it's a spectrum of disease ranging from mild to life-threatening. They talk about mild acute mountain sickness as being like a hangover, and a headache, nausea, reduced appetite, a dizziness and a tiredness. The more life-threatening form of mountain sickness, um, we call it HACE or high altitude cerebral edema. And that's when fluid gets on the brain. And often you can behave like somebody who's severely drunk. So severe headaches, stumbling, confusion, and this can lead to coma and often death. And it sounds like that's what has taken hold um, at this high altitude with reducing oxygen supply. So is this a common way that tragedy happens at Everest where acute mountain sickness affects someone's behaviour, which slows down their descent and then they run out of oxygen? Absolutely. It's certainly one of the reasons. And um, decision-making ability, the ability even to do perform very simple tasks is reduced significantly, like even removing gloves which you shouldn't be doing at that high altitude anyway. But the smallest of tiniest of movements and decision making up there can be affected by the um, the low oxygen. And you don't even have to be at that high altitude for to suffer with high altitude cerebral edema. We have seen it in many of our trekkers who go to base camp, which is a much lower altitude, but some people who are very susceptible are prone to having high altitude cerebral edema at much lower altitudes. Yeah. So you touched on it a bit there about what happens to the brain when someone is suffering this severe mountain sickness. Can you explain the physiological process of, of how someone dies from it? What actually goes on in their body? Well, because of the oxygen is so limited and the, pretty much the body cells start to die, and when parts of our brain are deprived of oxygen, the cells are unable to function and unable to perform what they normally do and can result in somebody losing their life. It sounds like those two Sherpas were faced with a very difficult risk trade-off on whether they should have 
gone back up from Camp 4 to try and rescue Jason. Uh, they had the weather to contend with and they decided mm-hmm. that it was obviously too great a risk for them to go back up. That must mm-hmm. be a hard choice to make. Absolutely. Difficult decisions are made at that high altitude by every party, by both the climber and those assisting the Sherpa, the Sherpa guides and climbers who who go with the um, paying climbers. I have an awful lot of respect for the Sherpa climbers and the Sherpa teams who are very familiar with the mountain environment and overall have a lot of experience with managing both themselves and visitors to the mountain and absolutely completely agree very difficult decision to make mother nature at that altitude as well the risks of the wind the poor visibility avalanche risk crevasse all of those risks are very much part of climbing the mountain any mountain so what's the overall state of things in terms of hiking mount everest at the moment it's a story that's been in the media for many years now that more and more people have wanted to climb it, which has increased the the risk of people dying, has led to extreme pressure on Sherpas, has led to extremely high traffic up on those trails. Are we doing enough to keep everyone safe up there or or is there still an extraordinary and unnecessary amount of risk being taken? The um, popularity of Climbing Mount Everest certainly seems to be increasing. And for Nepal, it is a huge source of income for the country in terms of its tourism, both for the amount of people wanting to visit Everest Base Camp and then for the dedicated climbers who wish to climb to the summit of Mount Everest. Every year, the Nepali government will issue a certain number of permits to climb Mount Everest. And uh, for every foreign climber, there's probably three to four local Nepali personnel to support that climber, um, whether it be a Sherpa climber or a cook or a server or a um, porter. So I guess there's that delicate balance between enabling tourism to be a huge part of the Nepali economy versus um, safety on the mountain and making sure it's is safe for every climber as is absolutely humanly possible. Um, there's always going to be unknowns on the mountain with weather and uh, risk of avalanche and crevasses giving way. Um, so there's always going to be um, risks to climbing um, a high altitude mountain, no matter where it is in the world. For anybody making a decision to climb Everest, obviously the preparation is, is essential and being with the right group of people with the right experience and then everything else is a bit unknown with regards to what mother nature can present to us. So Deidre after all your personal experience of volunteering with the Himalayan Rescue Association of getting to know Sherpas, getting to know climbers, studying mountain medicine, if there's one thing that you could change about the way Western tourists approach Everest, the way they go about it, the way they prepare, or even just the the attitude people have, what's the one message you would like to get out? Respecting the culture, respecting the mountain, and also um, appreciating that it's not 
a walk in the park, that it's difficult. Um, it's challenging both physically and emotionally. And to just prepare for that and to take the advice of the people around them who have been doing this work for many years, who will have advice and to take that advice and, and also to take responsibility to informing yourself about the risks of altitude sickness and what measures you can take to reduce um, or just to be aware of it so that if you see it either in yourself or in the people that you're traveling with, that you can sort of say, how are things? How are you? Can you please go get checked? And um, to decide whether you need to go down to descend or whether just to, to stay where you are, allow your body to acclimatize before going further. Now, that's more relevant at lower altitudes. Mm. And like I said, once once you get over 8,000 metres, that's a very different environment. I mean, is there also a lesson that no matter how much preparation you do, that things can still go wrong? Because this this man, Jason Kennison, sounds like an incredible human being. He had to learn to walk again after being in a, a car accident. He was raising money for um, Spinal Cord Injury Australia. He'd spent six weeks in the Himalayas beforehand. He'd done lots of mm -hmm. trekking in New Zealand and lots of preparation and still up there in the death zone, things went south. Unfortunately, that's one of the devastating consequences of being up at high altitude. And Mr. Kennison did all of the right things. It sounds like he prepared very well for the, this very challenging event. And then circumstances were such that despite all of his efforts with preparation and with what he still achieved, he wasn't able to come home safely. That was Dr. Deirdre McCormack and such a sad story, but still a lot achieved by Jason. Just his attitude before he, he took on this summit, his attitude about raising money, about resilience, the way he dealt with his recovery, and then of course his desire to help other people. And if you actually want to donate to his cause, you still can. His Just Giving page is still up. Just Google search, Just Giving, My Climb to Everest. Listener.